You're listening to episode 61 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. I'm joined on the podcast today by author and professor Alan Noble. His book, Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age, is a really important read and really one of the best reads I've read in the past 12 months. Our conversation's a really insightful one, and I hope it means as much for you as a writer, as a pastor, or even a Christian as it does for me. I've also got a special offer for you. The Pastor Writer Podcast has now been approved to offer you a free Audible audiobook. Audible books are a big part of my approach to reading and learning. I'm always looking for ways to read more, and audiobooks are a big part of that, whether it's on my drive or mowing the lawn or the occasional jog. I actually have a gold plan, which for $14.95 a month allows me to download any one audiobook plus two Audible originals every month. In fact, today's guest, Alan Noble's book, Disruptive Witness, is normally $22.74 on Audible, but with this special promotion, you can download it for free as soon as you're done listening to this episode. It's also worth noting that Audible isn't just for books. I'm a big fan of the Great Courses lecture series, and there's several of them on Audible. I recently listened to a 12-hour and 16-minute course on St. Augustine's Confessions, and I'm currently listening to an 18-hour course by Dr. Jody Magnus on the Holy Land Archaeology. Those courses are usually 30 to $40 a piece, but with this promotional code, you can download any one of the more than 50 religious courses for free. So whether it's courses or books, Audible is a really incredible value for what you get. And all you need to do to be able to download this first free audiobook is go to audibletrial.com slash pastorwriter. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash pastorwriter. There's a link in the show notes. And then you can click Try Audible Free to be able to access that free book. I really hope it's a blessing to you and gets you another access, another way to be able to keep reading, keep learning, and keep growing. Now on to our interview with Alan Noble. Well, joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Alan Noble. He's an assistant professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University and the editor-in-chief of Christ and Pop Culture. His writing has appeared in sources such as Christianity Today, First Things, The Atlantic, BuzzFeed, Vox, and many more. In 2018, he released the now award-winning book, Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. And uh, my favorite endorsement is the one that shows up on your website by no other than Tim Keller, who wrote, it's the best book I've read recently. And no, I didn't get paid, nor was I contacted to say it. I mean it. So uh, uh, what better endorsement is there than that? Alan, congratulations. It really is a great book. I've enjoyed being able to read it and uh, really appreciate you being on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I, I like to think about the, the fact that uh, recently is not defined so to be like <laughs> you know, this week. Yeah, right. Five minutes, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it could be anything. Who knows? But yeah. Well, uh, you, the book has been, uh, it's been really successful. And I know I've, so many people have talked about the impact it's had on them. And for those who haven't read the book, maybe a good place to sort of start is you, you open the book with this kind of uh, imagined evangelism scenario that I think really sets up the thing you're trying to say or, or draw our attention to in the book. Maybe you could recount that scenario as a place to start. Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, so um, in this this potential scenario, which is something that I, I wrestled with, is really what inspired the book. The possibility that you could, let's say, invite your coworker out for lunch, <clears throat> and the two of you sit down and you have a conversation, and you share the reasons why uh, joining the church you've recently joined has transformed your life, improved your marriage. 
uh, given you meaning, uh, made you feel feel more fulfilled, give you a sense of community, and your coworkers having lunch with you uh, informs you how uh, CrossFit has really changed his life and how he feels much more um, healthy. You know, mental his me- mental health has improved and. His uh, marriage has actually gotten better. His temper has gone down because he's had an outlet for it. And, you know, you might continue the conversation and maybe have a debate about the resurrection and historical evidence for it. But at the end of the conversation, um, he leave or you leave thinking, wonderful. You know, I had this this opportunity to share the gospel. I can maybe tweet out hashtag evangelism um, and tell people about how I successfully share the gospel today. And, or you might go away thinking, uh, I need better evidence. You know, he asked about historical evidence for the resurrection. I, I should have some scholar memorized. Um, but you might feel like, okay, I've, I've done something meaningful. I've shared uh, you know, why the gospel is true. And what I fear might happen is he walks away thinking, man, Alan really needs to try CrossFit. I'm going to bring him a brochure tomorrow at work. Um, or he might walk away thinking, you know, I, I need to Google some other evidence to, 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 to react to what Alan said. Or, um, or he might just open his phone and uh, read something insane going on in the news, which is always the case. And just not think about the conversation at all. And underneath all of this is the the possibility that when we have conversations such as these, neither of us is actually talking about a living and transcendent God and the fact that we live in his universe. But instead, both of us uh, are are expressing our uh, personal identity and preferences uh, we're doing playing a, a kind of rhetorical game where we articulate the things that we value and we try to defend them. But neither of us is really trying to persuade the other person, and neither is really open to being persuaded. And in the mind of my friend, CrossFit as a lifestyle option uh, is the same category of thing as Christianity. It's something you do to improve the quality of your life. And if it works for me, that's great. But for him, you know, going to the gym is actually more effective. I think what's so effective about the way the book opens with this scenario is that uh, um, we we find ourselves in those kinds of things. You know, you imagine it, but we're all sort of putting it in the immediate context of actual conversations we are having that do seem to go this way. And and you've already sort of highlighted the the, the two kind of components you highlight in the book are what you describe as uh, a sort of distracted culture and a secular age. And so I wanted to real quickly kind of look at those as well. This idea of, a, you've kind of alluded to with the distraction, right? The phone is immediately there to sort of cut off any thinking or any sort of reflecting on that conversation. But what do you mean by our the age that we're in is becoming an age of distraction? So as, as you point out, I mean, uh, you know, the phone is right there. And this has always been the case for humans, um, Socrates stood on the corner and some, of some street in Athens and accosted Athenians saying, why don't you ask questions about life, the big questions? Why are you so obsessed about working and making money and owning things and you don't care about your soul at all? And his point was a point about distraction. You're busy doing things so that you don't ever have to deal with these bigger issues in life. Pascal in France, many centuries later, 
asks the same thing. Um, and, and he poses the same, same question. And, and he suggests that the, the reason we don't want to slow down and have time to think, the reason we want to be constantly diverted is the word he used, diverted, is because if we're alone with ourselves, we have to sort of ask these fundamental questions. Am I all right? Am I righteous? Uh, is there a reason for me to live? Uh, have I done you know, things that are good? Or do, are, are there things I need to uh, rectify? And those are frightening questions that we'd rather not uh, deal with. What's different from, oh, I think it's 18th century France with Pascal and 5th century BC for Socrates and you know, 21st century America is that while humans have always desired to be distracted so that they don't have to deal with anxiety or dread or guilt, Socrates, ancient Athenians didn't have in the palm of their hand a device that is connected to, for all intents and purposes, endless, high-quality, high-speed entertainment. And that's what we have. I mean, so, so, you know, we can, you know, the, 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 the accessibility, the affordability, the quality of the things that can distract us and pull our attention away from our, our own thoughts is just categorically different than I think almost any other period in, in human history. And so that uh, somebody can, from the moment they wake up until the moment they the phone drops out of their hand as they fall asleep at night, you can be perpetually plugged in, listening, reading, watching um, something. Yeah, the, your work strikes me as um, one of my favorite books was Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. And of course, he's kind of primarily writing in the time of the television and thinking how television and mass media is right. impacting. And I see the work you're doing is sort of taking that next step and saying, well, look how that's continued to evolve in the distractions of now mobile devices and the proliferation of access anywhere we are anytime, not just sort of in mass media. But the other element you add to this is the idea of a secular age. And I know um, uh, Charles Taylor is an important part of how you define that and how it shaped it. So maybe you could talk for a second about the importance of Charles Taylor in your writing and why that yep. secular age theme becomes important in the book as well. So uh, uh, Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, as you, as you mentioned, is one of those books that is really the, my favorite kind of book. It's a book that you read and the author gives language in a framework and context for a phenomenon that you've experienced but that you couldn't describe. So he explains he historically and philosophically how we are living in a secular age. When I read it, I was better able to name the things that I had already experienced and witnessed. So, for example, when ta Charles Taylor talks about a secular age, he doesn't mean an atheistic age or an age of unbelief, although it can involve that. Instead, he's contrasting our age with, let's say, the Middle Ages where if we were born in France in the 12th century, we would both be Christians because that's almost the only group of people there were uh, Christians. If you were born at that time, you were a Christian. Um, well, similarly, I was born a Christian and I was raised Christian and Lord willing, I'll die Christian. The difference between me and the you know 13th century uh, French peasant is that for that peasant, uh, they could never imagine not being Christian. Whereas for me, I have always known that I don't have to be Christian. I've 
always known that there are other intelligent, interesting people who seem to be living fulfilling and pleasurable lives who don't believe the same as I do. They don't believe that there's a God, or if they do, it's a very different God than who I believe in. And so this results in something, you know, Taylor talks about this fact that everything is contested in a secular age. In a secular age, belief in God is just one of a multitude of possible beliefs, and it's increasingly the less plausible, Taylor says. And so practically, what that how that works out is, well, going back to the example I gave of my friend at, at, at lunch, when I tell my friend, you know, well, here's some historical reasons to believe the Bible, he knows that everything is contested. So he can say, well, Alan's given me some scholars who say that resurrection happened, but I guarantee that there are scholars who I can find who disagree with the resurrection, which means that everything is just up in the air. There's no way to really adjudicate because everyone is just making arguments. And he can say to himself, and I, I did have a friend once who made this, who said this to me, that um, although he believed in God, he didn't want to go to church because he felt like he couldn't tell which church. He wouldn't know which church was the right one to go to. And in fact, he wouldn't know which religion was the right religion to believe. And there are so many religions because, again, everything is contested and all the beliefs are multiplying so that he didn't have enough time in his life to figure out who God really is. So his response was, I just need to basically live how I think God wants me to live. So it's a turn inward. Um, and that, I think, is a, is a helpful way of understanding a secular age. Another quality of it is that, that Taylor says we, we live within the eminent frame, which is a, a strictly materialist account of the world. And even people like myself uh, who, who believe that there is a transcendent God who created us and sustains us till, still – um, we might not intellectually say, I live in a purely materialist world, but experientially, um, that's how we frame the world. Um, so I like to give the example of, of a rainbow. Most of us who are you know, raised in the church, we you know, heard the Old Testament story. Maybe we saw it on felt board in Sunday school, how the rainbow came to be and Noah. But the reality is when I see a rainbow, I want to elbow somebody to me and say, hey, look, there's a rainbow, or I want to take a picture of it and post it and say, hey, here's a rainbow, or I think back to an elementary school definition or, or explanation, you know, scientifically, here's what a rainbow is. It's unlikely that I ever get to the spiritual reflection that, you know, God, you know, chose rainbows as a sign to his people that will never flood the earth again. Now, why is that? Because rationally, you know, cognitively, on the surface, I will tell you, yes, that's what God did. It's, it's this story in the Old Testament. But in my day-to-day experience, I interpret the world as a purely materialist phenomenon. So, um, and, and I think we could multiply examples. So that's, that's the secular as, as, as he explains it. And I think it creates unique problems. And, and again, I think the example I gave earlier of my friend who, who doesn't really isn't persuaded by evidence of the resurrection – and ultimately doesn't think that there's a way to figure out what God is real, um, that explains how this is, is difficult uh, or an additional challenge to evangelism. Yeah, I want to come back to this in a second and keep looking at this idea of distraction and secularism. But as a uh, – well, 
I know what normally happens is people speak really highly of Charles Taylor's work, uh, and then someone like myself goes and buys a copy of it. And the truth is, I think you would agree, it's a challenging book, a challenging read. Oh my gosh! As an English professor, and and this happens. Like I want to be careful with the podcast when we start quoting books and books. People start buying them, and then they they get discouraged in their reading. You know, thinking they're going to learn all this. What as, as you're working yeah. with students all the time who are picking up difficult texts like Charles Taylor that you know may have really profound, insightful points, but are going to be a project. They're going to be difficult to work through. Yeah. Um, what's some of the advice you give to students or even listeners now about how to work through challenging books like that or the value of working through those books? That's, a, that's an important point. This is a really important point because um, we have very limited time and there are so many amazing books that all of us will not get to read in our lifetime. We're just There's just not enough time. And so we have to be uh, discerning about what we read. Charles Taylor's A Secular Age is a think about 800 pages, seven, 800 pages, and it's dense. I, I, I frankly think that he could have used a better editor and condensed quite a few sections. Um, I don't think pastors should read it unless they uh, feel really compelled to. Uh, I don't think it's, it's a good use of their time. I think Jamie Smith's uh, book, How Not to Be Secular, it's maybe, I think it's probably less than 200 pages, and it is just um, a, a sort of summary in much clearer language of what Charles Taylor is doing. And I, I always recommend that book because I think uh, for 95, 98% of, of people who might be interested in a secular age, Jamie Smith's book is more than enough. And um, <laughs> because what will happen is you'll, you'll pick up this tome of 800 pages and you'll start reading it you'll just get burnt out and um it, it's not worth it so so i you know i like to talk to my students about you know okay what what is a good use of of your time and in this case unless you're going to study philosophy or you're going to write a book about charles taylor probably don't need to read them yeah, I think that's really helpful. It's uh, I have those books too. Uh, so, for instance, I'm, I'm Dietrich Bonhoeffer fan. I've talked about his book Life Together, and uh, but yet his book on ethics is one that every maybe five years I'll like try to read a little bit more and <laughs> make a little more progress, and then I get lost. Uh, yeah. Same with like Jonathan Edwards' uh, Religious Affections. Like I'm getting a little bit further ever so often, but I, I I always think it's worth saying on the podcast. We talk so much about books, but some of these are just hard, and just because um, they're so important doesn't mean they're easy to get through. I think you speak through that well. Um, sort of coming back to this idea of you had mentioned that even though as a believer, you still can find yourself sort of operating in this materialist mindset. Um, are there ways you think that current evangelistic approaches or the ways that we conduct church might actually be contributing to some of the distraction and some of the secularism that at the same time we imagine we're trying to to compete against or speak against? Yeah, I mean, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, for um, for many of us, when we want to speak out into the world, or even 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 inside the church, um, and whether that speaking is in terms of announcing that you're having a new church service, or you're starting a new sermon series, or maybe it's an evangelistic announcement, you're going to have some event that you're inviting unbelievers into that you think they'll be interested in whether it's just making people in your neighborhood aware that your church is here, whatever it might be, uh, when we go to communicate, we tend to use the tools of communication that are most familiar to us. And those tend to be dedicated. 
uh, by uh, secular organizations, um, and which is not necessarily bad, right? But but we do have to understand that that, for example, advertisements. Um, you know, the, the, when we think about advertising a church sermon series, we're going to use our minds are going to reflect back on advertisements that were successful to us, and those are going to be commercials that we've seen on TV. They're going to be ad campaigns, uh, banner ads that we've seen online, or um, you know, billboards. And um, I, I, I think you know it's important to note that that Christians have the freedom to use uh, things of the world. For holy purposes, Paul clearly uses the pagan poets uh, to glorify God. So I think that's fine, but we have to be discerning about it. And sometimes what can happen is we'll we'll use the tools we think are neutral to to share something about our faith, and we'll unintentionally bring over some of the baggage of those tools and 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 add them to our message. So, for example. Uh, if you, uh, you know, continuing on this idea of a, a, a new sermon series, uh, you know, it, it's becoming more common for churches to to create um, commercials or ads. Maybe they'll show an ad for a, a new men's Bible study or, again, a, a new sermon series. And it's like a little video with some images and a voiceover and quick cuts. And to the viewer, it, it feels a little bit like a movie trailer. Maybe you even design some posters that look a little bit like uh, movie posters to go along with it. Because again, you're thinking this is the language that speaks to me because I'm used to it. Well, what I'm concerned about is that some people are going to see that and unintentionally they're going to perceive this um, as suggesting that, that what you're getting in those sermons, the kind of thing it is, is in the same category as, as a movie. Right, so uh, going to a church service is another kind of thing that you do to live a fulfilling life, just like going to see the new Marvel movie. Um, and what this does is it flattens out the gospel; it flattens out our faith to make it just another consumer preference, as opposed to saying this is something categorically different. Our faith is not something that we choose because it it, it goes along with our authentic identity, and it makes us feel good about ourselves. Um, in fact, our faith is us recognizing reality, recognizing that we live in God's created universe, and submitting ourselves to that reality, which is a very different thing. So, uh, and I could multiply examples, but, but but the general principle here is that, that I do think in lots of different ways the church unintentionally in fact, often I think with good intentions, but but not so good results, co-ops uh, tools and messages and ideas from the world to try to share the gospel, and it sort of smuggles in uh, both distractions sometimes, but then also uh, some some secular assumptions. Yeah, and the the tragic thing seems to be that the very thing we imagine is gaining someone's attention is also weakening and undermining long term commitment. Uh, so we may we may win the moment of interest, but we really sort of continue to perpetuate this this lack of commitment, lack of willingness to really embrace something long term. That's what scares me the most. Yeah, that both could be happening at the exact same time, and we're unaware of it. Right, because because if if someone comes to church because they feel like 
okay, this is going to make my marriage better, just like going to a marriage convention is or something like that. And it's going to make my kids better and it's going to make me feel like I have a a sense of community. And, And in other words, it fits my style, music, the worship. It fits kind of who I am. It makes me feel like this... This fits with my identity. Well, what happens when the pastor preaches a sermon about, um, oh, I don't know, marital fidelity or something like this? And, and, and then you're thinking, gosh, well, I actually think part of my identity involves being authentic to who I am, involves leaving my wife and going with this, this person who seems to be fit better with who I am. You know, she gets me more than my current wife does. Um, and I think... So if they're drawn into the church because of personal preferences, then when those personal preferences no longer ident- uh, align with what the church is teaching, they're going to bail. So yeah. yeah, or if I come to church because I primarily see it as a way to improve my marriage, then should my marriage yep. that no longer be a priority to me, or should my marriage fall apart, then my my motive for participation in the church is lost at the exact same time as losing the marriage itself. Yep. Well, let me ask this. Um, you call, in, in spite of, or in light of all of this, you call for Christians to instead brace what you refer to as a disruptive witness. Um, maybe you could help define that. And yeah. also, I'm, I'm really curious to hear you talk about how writing and the calling to write might be a, a, a participant in what you describe as disruptive witnessing in the world. Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, so, so first, the idea of a disruptive witness um, assumes that, that, our society, in our society, a lot of people uh, who are sharing the gospel with will uh, have a kind of barrier or a buffer or kind of shield where as we're sharing the gospel, they'll either assume that what we're really doing is sharing just another preference, just another strategy for living your best life now, right? As opposed to acknowledging something about the nature of reality, which is different. Or, so, so that's the, 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 the buffer of secularism, or they'll have the buffer of distraction, where you do sort of pierce through that secular idea that everything is contested, and you, and you help them realize, well, there is some truth here, and they feel a little anxiety or guilt, and then they have that immediate uh, access of the phone or the laptop or Netflix or whatever it might be, an audiobook, a podcast, um, except this podcast, which is great. So, uh, and so they they... Uh, you know, they, they distract themselves until that anxiety goes away and then they just keep busy. So my thought is in, in, in recognizing this particular problem that I think our time has is we need a kind of witness that upsets both of those things that says to people, okay, I know that you're going to assume when I talk about Christianity, that I'm just talking about a lifestyle that I'm just talking about a social club that I'm just talking about uh, you know, uh, you know, a community that I've elected to join, but that's not what it is. It's about the nature of the created world and a God who loves us and died on the cross for our sins and our need to submit ourselves to him. So we need to dig that. We need to challenge that assumption, the natural way, I think, or the, the default way a lot of people will hear us when we're talking about the gospel. But I also think we need to disrupt, um, you know, their default habits of coping with anxiety or with ideas that that, that um, are unsettling or uncomfortable to them and and there are various ways to do that but the, but but all of them have the goal of people leaving our conversations with the intention to wrestle with the ideas that we've talked about rather than ignoring them and pushing them away which which again I think is the default 
But I'm curious to hear what you, it, it sounds like you have an idea about the writing and how writing could particularly, so I'm curious, I'm going to throw the question back <laughs> at you. What, what, Cause it's, I, I, I sense that you've got some thoughts. So you, you tell me, I, I'm, yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, well, so I, I part of the premise of the podcast, and listeners know that I'm sort of a bivocational, I pastor, uh, as well as I sort of do some of the this writing that comes through on the podcast. And uh, uh, the more I sort of was wrestling through your book and thinking about how it impacts me as a pastor, I recognize that there's so much writing that can be distractive too. Like, I mean, I know the habit of going through Twitter and clicking a link and it's, you know, it's some puff piece on something or some controversial thing. And, uh, but the discipline and part of why we talked about reading difficult things already too. Um, so much of Christian and, and the publishing process itself can lend towards this, like what gets published and the need for a platform. And, and, uh, it can feel like, we are in need of people who can be disruptive as writers into the way that we as Christians are reading and thinking about the value of reading in our life. And I know for me, some of the, some of the books and authors that have been most valuable, I think about, you know, for instance, listeners will know I'm a big fan of Eugene Peterson and his work. And there is something unassuming and quietly disruptive about the way he writes. And it's as if when you read his writing, there's he has a handle on the world or sees the world in a way that's different than I had, which, to your point, breaks that kind of materialistic worldview I'm living in. And all of a sudden, I find myself saying, okay, he and I, we're not living in the same physical place, but we're living relatively in the same place, the same culture. And yet he's seeing things and sensing things in this that I haven't been. Why is that? It gets me sort of, and he doesn't always yeah. give you the answer, right? It doesn't break down into a, where here's the three steps to how you'll now see the world as I do. <laughs> Instead, he sort of leaves the question yeah. hanging and you're forced to sort of dig deeper into, into his perspective, into this worldview. It entices you into it. And I think we need more of that. I'm answering the question. I would like to hear you now <laughs> respond no. as well. That's the kind of thing I would like yeah. to see more of in Christian yeah. writing. And I'm curious for you um, if, yeah. if that is an opportunity, because there's not a lot of that, I think, going on. And I'm, that's not trying to throw people under the bus. There's great books that are being published right no. now. But I think we need more of that kind of writing to be to show up in our Christian reading. Absolutely. So, you know, there are various market forces that... that um, incentivize against that kind of writing. So, for example, most Christians want stuff that sort of already confirms their views or their their biases. I mean, at, mm-hmm. not just Christians. This is just the human All of us, right? Yep. We want things that, that flatter us, that tickle our ears, as Paul warns about. And, and so sometimes what that means is writing that's really accessible, that doesn't stretch us, that doesn't really challenge us, or it challenges us in, in actually fairly flattering ways. And uh, so that makes it difficult. I mean, you know, publishers have to, you know, they have to keep their doors open. And um, for the, you know, the, the writers who can really do what you just described, they have to be brilliant at understanding their audience because the, you have to be able to meet the audience where they are and then bring them somewhere else. Right. So lots of authors are great at meeting the, the, their uh, audience where they are and then just staying down there with them. But but that's not enlightening them. Right? That's not giving them wisdom. That's not helping them mature and grow. And that's not edifying them. It's just it's just reaching them. Um, and so, you know, you, you said unassuming. I think that's a, a, a great word because you have to be able to sort of open the door and invite people in to your ideas. And, and that means it has to be at a level with a vocabulary, with examples and framing that they can resonate with. But uh, again, you know, you know, you just 
described that, I think, well, with Peterson, you know, you have to be able to sort of unsettle them once they're there and, and show them, okay, here's how there's more to this than you, you previously understood. I think C.S. Lewis, I mean, I think one of the successes of mere Christianity is that he, he writes in a way that even still today, I, I continue to hear stories about people coming to Christ reading that book. And, yeah. I, and I think it's in part because uh, it was uh, unassuming. I mean, it's at, it's at a level that, that you know people can grasp, and but he he unsettles things at, at the same time. So I absolutely, I think writing, I think especially um, you know creative work, um, and and in fact Charles Taylor at the end of his book he talks a little bit about the you know the need for the possibility of of, of Christian writers writing in such a way that that it um, makes sense to people who live and only think in terms of the eminent frame of this material, raw material world, but then pulling them out of that and, and, and showing them, okay, here's, here's how there's more to this world than a, a strictly material account will make sense of. So I, I think there's a lot of possibilities. It's exciting, I think. I do too. Uh, Lewis was another one I immediately thought of, and I think you're right. I think this idea of being a disruptive witness, I think for those who are interested in writing, it really is an invitation to to explore what that could look like through your voice, through your calling. I just think there's so much opportunity to do exactly what you call us to do um, through this opportunity to write and have these extended conversations with readers that uh, that gives us an opportunity to break through. Reading is such an intimate sort of conversation we get to take part in to uh-huh. break through some of that distraction. I think... Uh, I hope to see more more Christian writers sort of rise to that occasion you describe as a disruptive witness. Yeah, me too. Well, uh, let's let's uh, wrap up with this. I'd love to know anything you're working on in the future, and uh, it's just on my heart. The book's been influential, and and I just was wondering if there's anything as listeners are sort of hearing what's up next that they could pray for you about. Pray uh, the work you're doing and the work that's ahead. Yeah, that would be wonderful. So, I mean, I hope to start work on uh, a follow up. Um, tentatively called uh, You Are Not Your Own. And I, I hope to sort of address one of the, the, the weaknesses of the book. As I wrote it and I thought more about my own personal habits and sort of, you know, why is it that I, that I want to be distracted? And I found my, myself saying, you know, there are many days where, you know, when I'm walking home from work, uh, the reason I want to put my headphones on, the, re- the reason I want to check Twitter is that I feel like this is what I need to do to get through the day. Like I have so many things going on, so many things I'm behind on. There's so much pressure, this feeling of missing out, of there's so many bills, uh, so, so much paperwork. Um, right now we're thinking about changing our healthcare provider and it's like, uh, it, it feels like a, it's, it's just so Kafkaesque. Like, how can I ever know which is the right healthcare plan? It just seems impossible to decide. And then plus I've got kids and all these things. And in any case, I, I, I think one of the things that I, I did not consider enough is that, that, that the nature of our society, the, the way society is, is currently set up in many ways, I think is not properly built for humans. Um, it doesn't recognize our true humanity and our personhood. Uh, and as, as a result, we're constantly in friction. And, uh, there's, and, and I, think, I think we see evidence of this with you know, rising suicide rates and deaths of despair with overdoses and just a general sense of meaninglessness. So 
that's what the next book's going to tackle, and it's going to sort of be based on the Heidelberg Catechism's first question and answer, which is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Um, that is, uh, I, I'm not my own, but belong, body and soul, life and death to Christ. And um, so anyway, it's it's an exciting project. I'm super excited to just be done with the semester. I'll miss my students, but I really want to dive into it. And uh, it's, a, it's a daunting task because, as you said, I really, I really want to create a book that somebody could, a Christian could, could hand to a non-Christian, and the, and the non-Christian would resonate with the description of contemporary society and say, yeah, I'm feeling those things. Like, I get that dread. I get that anxiety. I get that sense of desperation, of loneliness, whatever it might be. And I'm meeting them where they're at, but then also sort of unsettling their understanding of where those problems come from and, and how to deal with them. So, yeah, that would be great. Well, it sounds like it just as equally important one. So we'll pray uh, We'll pray that the, the work goes well yeah. over the summer break, for sure. And if Thank you. you haven't already read it, I just I highly, highly recommend you pick up Alan's book, Disruptive Witness. There'll be links, of course, in the show notes. It's, uh, it's a, a great read, important one, I think, as a writer, too, as we've talked about. Alan, uh, best way for people to be able to follow you, keep up with future work as well, and pick up a copy of the book? Uh, probably, so on Twitter, uh, the uh, uh, Alan Noble, or at the Alan Noble, and um, I think my website is com. That sounds plausible. So <laughs> We'll make sure there's a link in the show note. How yeah. about that? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Perfect. It's the end of the semester. You get a break. So, well, Alan, yeah, uh, it's been a, pri- right. a privilege and an honor. Just thanks again for being able to join us today. Thank you. Well, I hope I've piqued your interest in picking up Alan's book, Disruptive Witness. As always, you can find a link to his book as well as his other writings by visiting the show notes for this episode at pastorwriter.com slash 61. I also wanted to say thanks. A few of you have been taking the time to leave reviews on iTunes. Those reviews on iTunes are not only a way for new listeners to find the show, but they're also helpful feedback to help me continue improving Pastor Writer Podcast. If you would, take a few seconds. You can do it by just clicking on one of the stars in the app or even writing out a message about what you like or dislike about the show. As always, I want to say thanks for listening and until next time. 